So we're reading Exodus 19, verses 20 to 25. When the Lord descended upon Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, the Lord summoned Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people not to break through to look to the Lord to look, otherwise many of them will perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people are not permitted to come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and keep it holy. The Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bring Aaron with you, but do not let either the priests or the people break through to come up to the Lord, otherwise he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. And now we go to the book of Revelation, and we're reading the first six-ish uh, verses of chapter 21. So, 20, chapter 21, beginning of verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. And the one who was seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Our final reading this morning is from Ephesians. It's on page 207 in the New Testament section of the Pew Bibles. And if you have the larger print version, it's on page uh, 1831. So that's the first 16 verses of Ephesians chapter 4. I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it is said, 
When he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. When it says he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children, tossed to and fro, and blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness in deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knitted together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. Thanks be to God for that reading. Do you ever wonder what the point of church is? I mean, church in general, not specifically the congregation that meets here at 235 Shaftesbury Avenue, although, of course, for those of us here this morning, our general commitment to the church universal takes specific shape in the here and now in terms of our commitment to be here, in this place, on this day. Well, whether, whether you normally attend church here or somewhere else, whether you attend regularly or irregularly doesn't really answer my question of what the point is of attending church. Why are we here? One of the questions that I've been asking a few people recently is why they come to Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church. And as you might expect, I've received a fairly wide variety of replies. And I thought it might be interesting if I shared some of these this morning, all suitably anonymised, of course, to protect the innocent, although it's quite likely that some of us here will recognise our own opinions. It turns out that one of the main reasons people attend Bloomsbury is because of our liberal, open, inclusive <coughs> theology. Certainly this is one of the things that drew me to want to come and be part of this church. We have a long and proud history of being a church where awkward questions are not merely allowed, but are actively encouraged. We are a church which rejects the easy answer, the superficial certainty, in favour of exploring with integrity the complex nuances of what it means to be human before God. So, we are liberal, open and inclusive, and we always have been. We are also politically and socially aware. It's well known that William Brock, the Victorian founding minister of this church, 
remarked some 70 years before Karl Barth nicked it and made it famous that the best tools for the preacher are the Bible and the Times newspaper. And we still seek to bring the issues of the world around us before God in a way which transforms both us and the world. Which brings me to another reason people gave for coming to Bloomsbury. And that is our culture of service to the world. We may not be the kind of church where people put their hands in the air for Jesus, but we certainly are the kind of church where people get their hands dirty for Jesus. And credit where credit's due, that was Dawn's phrase, putting those two alongside each other. From the night shelter to the Tuesday lunch club, from the Sunday homeless lunch to the evening service, to open doors where we welcome and care for anyone who comes in through the door, to our communities ministry, to the soup kitchen we'll be starting next year, to our campaigning for the implementation of the living wage, the cancellation of third world debt and the inclusion of those excluded elsewhere because of gender, ethnicity or sexuality. I could go on and on and on about our hands-on engagement with the social and political issues of our city and our world. Maybe this is why you come to Bloomsbury, because you want to be part of this kind of church. Or maybe you come for the worship. Certainly this was also a factor for me. When Liz and I used to come in the early 2000s and sit anonymously at the back, usually over that side, whenever we were in London, never dreaming that one day we would come to call this place home. It was the worship, and well, the worship and the preaching, perhaps. In those days, the minister was a man called Brian, who is, in my view, one of the best preachers we have in the Baptist family. Although I have to say, to my eternal disappointment, I never heard Howard Williams preach, so maybe I need to reserve my judgment a little on that one. Anyway, Brian had been my college principal, and I had attended his preaching classes. So I'd like to say he taught me all I know, but I'm not sure it would be fair to saddle him with that level of responsibility. <laughs> but it, nonetheless, the combination of reverent worship and thoughtful preaching certainly keeps many of us coming back. We have some wonderful musicians. We have a fine pipe organ. We have a willingness to still sing the great hymns of the faith alongside the best of the more contemporary worship material. We have, thankfully, so far avoided the worship wars which have blighted so many other congregations. And it is my hope that the music we use and the words we sing to it will continue to offer a reverent and engaging path to the presence of the living God, who is reaching out to us in love to draw from us psalms and hymns and spiritual songs of praise. We will continue to learn new material, just as we will continue to sing the old favourites. After all, it was all new once. However, I'm going to sound a slight note of warning here. Nothing lasts forever. And certainly not the cultural forms of our worship services. And whilst evolution rather than revolution is the order of the day, nonetheless change is here to stay. And if the main reason we come to church is the worship, we will need to learn grace and patience with those who come and worship alongside us, but worship differently to us. 
I wonder, are we any closer to puzzling out what the point of church is? Or here's another thing. Some of us keep coming here because it's where our friends are. For some of us, Bloomsbury is like our family. For some of us, Bloomsbury is our family. And we love the community. And we love the fellowship. And even when we disagree and fall out, we do so knowing that there is a bond of love which ties us to one another at a deep and unfathomable level. For some of us, it's like we couldn't leave even if we wanted to, any more than we could cut ourselves off from those we love. But of course, this can have its problems too. And we need to make sure that the way we include others in our Bloomsbury family is more than a warm welcome on their first day, important though that is. What I mean by this is do we allow new people to come and belong as they are, and not how we would like them to be? As with all churches, we need to guard against cliques. But the reality for many of us is that the friendship and the fellowship we have met and continue to meet here is what keeps us coming. Is this the point of church? Or maybe you come here because of our location. In London terms, we're at the centre of the wheel, with all the spokes leading to our local tube station. The strategic and symbolic location of Bloomsbury is no accident, and it's only set to increase with the local development associated with projects such as Crossrail and now Crossrail 2, apparently. This church was built here on this spot as the outworking of a vision for a Baptist church for the centre of the city. In a world where most Baptist churches are rural or suburban, we remain something of an anomaly. And so our distinctive ministry to the city, whether it be that corner of it on our own doorstep here in the West End, or the wider city where most of us live or work, is something unique and to be treasured. Where else would you get the diversity of congregation that we get here at Bloomsbury? I'm sometimes asked by fellow ministers to describe the makeup of the congregation. And my response is usually that if you were to go out into the streets and sort of grab the first 70 people who wandered by, you'd have a fair representation. Of course, the thing about Bloomsbury is that no one ever comes here twice by accident. Once, yeah, it's quite possible to be wandering past at 10.55 on a Sunday and decide to pop in. It may even be that we have some here this morning who fit into just that category. But you won't be back next week by accident. If you come back, it's because something about this unique expression of church has drawn you back. But of course, most of the people who visit us for the first time haven't done so by accident either. Most of the new people, week by week, when I'm greeting them at the door and welcoming them and asking asking them to take our greetings back to their church, and I say, you know, how did you come to be at Bloomsbury this morning? Most of them will say that they checked out our website, or our Facebook page, or our Twitter feed before coming. And so we need to take very seriously the ways in which we represent and communicate who we are. We will be a lifeline for those seeking a liberal, open, inclusive, servant-hearted, politically aware, socially engaged, reverent, thoughtful, creative, friendly city centre church. 
and by the same token, knowing who we are and what we stand for, will allow those who need something else from their church to go elsewhere, rather than staying here and making themselves and others unhappy. The thing is, there's lots of churches out there. We stand as just one among many. And the others, you know, the conservative evangelical Baptists, or the Anglicans, or the Catholics, or the Methodists, or the Swiss, or the French, or the American, or the United Reformed Church, or the Quakers, or I could go on and on and on. All these others, they aren't our competitors. They are our friends, they are our wider family, they are our cousins, our uncles, our aunts, our great-uncles, and sometimes our second cousins once removed. The thing is, there's more than one right way to be a church, just as there's more than one right way to be a family. We wouldn't dismiss our friends' family, as invalid because they have different traditions or beliefs about how you should celebrate a birthday or Christmas. And we shouldn't dismiss our friends in other churches on the basis of their differences to us. And so at last, and I should think some of you were wondering when I get to it, we find ourselves at the letter to the Ephesians. And we find ourselves back at the question of what the point of church is. Here the author implores his readers, I beg you, lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And here he takes us right to the heart of the issue of what it is to be a church. We're here because we've been called to be here. And as a people who are called, we are called to live that out and to behave with humility and gentleness and patience. We are called to bear with one another in love. Our behaviour towards one another and to all those we encounter is to be that of mature Christian disciples. In all of our dealings, whether with friends or strangers, whether with easy people or difficult people, we are called to live out the love of Christ that has called us to one another. The writer goes on. Make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. But we might well reply, how are we to do this? What does this look like in practice? How do we live this out? How do we know what behaviour is acceptable and what is not? Simply saying, love one another and live in peace is all very well, but how is that going to work in the real world? Well, if we're asking these sorts of questions, thankfully we aren't the first. The question of how high ideals work out in reality The question of how love one another works out when the person in front of you is really annoying has plagued religious philosophers for millennia. It's the question that the Israelites put to Moses when he led them from Egyptian slavery into freedom. Being free is great, they said, in theory, but in practice, how do we actually live this out? You're free, great, thanks, what next? So Moses went up the mountain at Sinai to ask God what next, and he came down from the mountain with two stone tablets on which were carved the Ten Commandments. You want to know how to live in freedom, said God? 
Then try the longer size. There's only ten, so it shouldn't be that hard to remember them and put them into practice. And so the Israelites tried to live by the Ten Commandments. But they soon discovered that ten wasn't enough. And as with all those who seek to live by rules, fairly soon a situation emerged that wasn't covered specifically and precisely by the original Ten Commandments, so an eleventh was needed. And then another, and then another, and before very long, the call from God to live in freedom led to the entire Deuteronomic and Levitical law codes. And I don't know if you've ever tried to read Deuteronomy and Leviticus, but my goodness. Spelling out exactly who could do what with whom, when, where, and what they could and couldn't wear or eat whilst doing it. But then even that wasn't enough. And the Jewish legal and scribal tradition arose to help flesh out the many, many laws with many, many more. And then into all of this came Jesus, stripping away the layers to get back to the key question. What is this all really for? How are we to live as humans before God and in relation to one another? And so we come to those strange few verses from the middle of our reading in Ephesians, where the author is actually quoting from Psalm 68, verse 18, if you're interested. It's verses 8 to 10. Let me read it to you again. Therefore it is said, quoting from the psalm, when he ascended on high, he made captivity itself a captive. He gave gifts to his people. When it says he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who ascended is the same one who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. Slightly complicated, but what's going on here is Jesus being depicted as a new Moses. Jesus going up on high at his ascension, just as Moses ascended Mount Sinai in the desert. But what Jesus returns with is not tablets of stone with a new revised standard law code. Rather, Jesus, ever the unconventionalist, returns from on high bearing gifts. And almost certainly what's in view here is the descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, when the Spirit fell from on high onto the gathered disciples, bringing them spiritual gifts. The one who ascends is Jesus the new Moses, and he descends back to his people into all the corners of the earth, not with a new law code, but by the power of his Spirit, bringing gifts for them. But the purpose of those gifts is still the same as the purpose of Moses' law. It is to teach them how to live as his people and his disciples. Now the rather radical implication of all of this, if you're following it, is that the gifts of the Spirit have replaced and supplanted the law of Moses and all that was built on it. Even the Ten Commandments themselves cease to be binding for those who receive the Spirit of Christ. Because the Christ-given guide to moral and ethical behaviour is no longer words carved on tablets of stone. It is rather the living word of Jesus, carved in their hearts and minds and souls by the Spirit of Christ who comes bringing gifts. 
I always get a bit worried when I hear people speaking of the Bible as if it is some kind of guidebook or handbook to Christian living, a kind of Christian version of the Jewish law. You see, that's not it at all. The scriptures bear testimony to Christ, who comes to us by his spirit, bringing gifts for faithful living. Elsewhere in the New Testament are various lists of the gifts that the Spirit brings. And some of those lists have led to no small amount of disagreement between the followers of Jesus. Some of you may have been in churches where arguments about the gifts of the Spirit have taken place. If you don't pray in tongues, are you saved? I don't know. This is a travesty and a tragedy, really. Because Ephesians makes it clear that the purpose of the gifts of the Spirit is to enable the followers of Christ to live Christ-like lives in unity and peace and in maturity of faith and knowledge. The fact that this so often doesn't happen is taken as an indication of immaturity on the part of the believers. And in verses 14 to 16, the writer of Ephesians effectively tells his readers to grow up, stop being babies, and start acting their age, not their shoe size. I paraphrase, but not much. The point is clear. Just as a child must grow to become an adult, leaving childish temper tantrums and juvenile behaviour behind, so those who are born again by the Spirit of Christ must grow into peace and stability. If they are to learn to live by the law of the spirit that brings life, rather than forever hankering back after the law of stone which brings death. And so we get to Ephesians' own little list of gifts that the spirit brings. And what we meet is a list of ministry gifts. Apostles, prophets and evangelists, pastors and teachers. Some have sought to make this a proscriptive description of the orders of ministry. I once had a friend who used to go on about the five-fold order of ministry. He used to be a nightclub bouncer. He said, you take five, you fold, and then you minister. To try and do something like that, to make a five-fold order of ministry from here, is to miss the point again. What we have here are gifts given to some for the building up of the many. And as with all the spiritual gifts, they are corporate in intent, not personal. I'm not called and gifted as a pastor for my own sake, but for the sake of the church. And the same is true for each of us in whatever gifts we receive from the Spirit. The spiritual gifts are given for the growth into maturity of the whole body of Christ, which is nourished as it shares the holy food of bread and wine, and is shepherded into maturity and unity by the gifts which come from above. And I wonder if this then is the point of the church. It is that all of us come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. This ultimately is why we're here. So as Ephesians says, I beg you 
to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been 